Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Uh, tonight, though, we're here to launch Janelle Brown's new book, uh, This Is Where We Live. She's a freelance journalist who writes for the New York Times, Vogue, Wired, L, and Self, among other publications. And she was formerly a senior writer for Salon. And please help me welcome her, Janelle Brown. Hi, everybody. Um, I hope you've all seen the cookies up front, because if you don't eat them, my husband's going to have to eat 150 cookies all by himself. And he will, and that'll be bad. Um, lovely to see you all here tonight. I'm so pleased to have so many people here, um, so many familiar faces. And uh, I'm very flattered that you came out for me. So um, here I am, two years later, after the first book. It's, it's nice to be back at Skylight, which is such a great bookstore and has been so supportive of my first book and hopefully will support my second one as well. Um, and uh, this one, I think some of you might find hits a little closer to home <laughs> than the first one. Uh, I was definitely inspired by the lives of the people that I saw around me in this uh, area, Los Feliz, Silver Lake, Echo Park, Mount Washington, etc. And uh, the book is takes place um, in 2008 in Mount Washington, and it's uh, about a married couple, a husband and wife. Uh, the husband is an indie musician who had some success as a uh, in an indie rock band when he was a little bit younger, and his wife is an independent filmmaker whose first film is about to be released. And uh, they have purchased their first home in Mount Washington, uh, right at the height of the boom and everything seems to be going hunky-dory until their uh, the recession hits and their mortgage um, their ARM mortgage balloons and their lives start to disintegrate so uh, hopefully it doesn't hit too close to home for many of you because <laughs> sorry <laughs> but uh, I, rather than babbling nervously up here I'm going to just read to you uh, a passage and hopefully that'll help me relax a little bit more Hopefully the wine will too. It's funny, I haven't done this in two years and I forgot how nervous it makes me. Um, maybe I shouldn't have had that third sugar cookie. All right, so let's start here. Um, I'm going to read you a section from Jeremy. Jeremy is the husband. We alternate back and forth between the husband, Claudia, and the wife. I mean, husband, Jeremy, and the wife, Claudia's point of view throughout this book. Um, the scene takes place right after Jeremy and Claudia have just been to visit um, their their bank, their mortgage uh, banker, uh, to find out if they can refinance, and have basically been told, "Sorry, tough shit." Excuse my language. Um, <clears throat> they drove home in silence. Jeremy behind the wheel of the Jetta, Claudia sitting stiffly beside him, flipping back and forth through her notebook. She made little strangling noises under her breath. Noises that Jeremy suspected were intended as an opening for him to ask what she was thinking. He glanced over to see her staring at her little apocalyptic jottings, stable income, and flipped on the radio as if this might somehow ward off the horror of those two words. 
The station was in the middle of a subscriber drive, and the DJ swapped banal platitudes, whoops, platitudes about the joys of supporting public radio. But even this was preferable to the painful conversation that he feared would otherwise fill the void. As they pulled onto the highway, he had the thought that sometimes struck him on occasions like this. What would Aoki think? Aoki, his own personal Jesus, an omniscient and certainly vengeful God, was always in the wings waiting to smite Jeremy with her unsolicited opinion. Even now, as he tried to dispel the memory of Tamra, that's the banker's, lecture about the necessity of income management and a long-term savings plan, he could, he could envision Aoki's disembodied moon face, her asymmetrical black bob whipping across her cheeks, getting stuck in her fuchsia lipstick as she shook her head in dismay. No, 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 no. He hadn't actually seen Aoki in nearly four years, not since the day he went to retrieve his guitar from her studio and found she'd hacked it into 20 pieces, painted it Pepto-Bismol pink, and then reassembled it as an abstract sculpture entitled Untitled 82, Fuck You, Jeremy. Still, Aoki was with him forever, judging him. And right now he knew that she would be laughing at him. He had committed the cardinal sin. He became boring. Aoki was many things, slightly schizophrenic, maddeningly childish, disgustingly talented, and above all, completely self-centered. But one thing that she was not, ever, was boring. The precious only child of Japanese immigrants who owned three sushi restaurants on Long Island, Aoki had been thrown out of four reform schools before her parents gave up and enrolled her in a New York art college at the age of 17. By the time Jeremy met her 12 years later, she was mildly notorious within a certain downtown art set for her Rococo paintings of classic cartoon characters in obscene sexual positions. Mickey Mouse 69ing Mary Worth, Dirty Sanchez, Andy Capp. Despite having attended the same New York Arts College three years later, Jeremy had never heard of Aoki before the night she barged backstage after an early This Invisible Spot gig and presented herself to him. He was, un he was used to undeserving female attention. When you were the guitarist of an indie rock band, it kind of came with the territory. But not like this. She wore a strapless white fake fur dress of her own design, held together with strategic Velcro, which she ripped apart as he stood by the rancid cold-cut tray. The dress dropped to the floor, revealing slight breasts and a pair of ba faded Boba Fett underoos. So I've got this thing right now for transparent communication, okay? She began, ignoring the flabbergasted groupies and his coughing bandmates, locking her dark eyes on Jeremy. It's kind of a social experiment, but I saw you on stage and I thought, hey, he's pretty cute and it'd be fun to fuck him, so here I am, an offering. And this is what you get, nothing coy about it, so you can't complain I misled you later. The lewd content of her proposition contrasted with her high-pitched little girl voice and the ridiculous underwear rendered Jeremy speechless for the first time he could remember. No humorous observations, no self-effacing reposts, no sly pop culture references could stand up to the furious intensity of Aoki's will. Jeremy thought she must be a little bit insane, but he admired the sheer ballsiness of the gesture, and he was stoned, so he took her up on her offer. Not right there and then, but about four hours later, after they'd shared two more joints and a pint of wild turkey and adjourned to her East Village flat. The force of Aoki's naked intention made him feel as if he'd looked in the mirror and discovered he was far more interesting than he'd ever felt himself to be.
He thought she'd somehow reinvented him, but he eventually realized over the ensuing four years that she devoured him instead, the way a scorpion eats its prey, paralyzing him and then swallowing him whole, beginning with his head. He spent the first few years of the millennium blindly pursuing Aoki through her two stints in rehab, three bouts of infidelity, two boys, one girl, and one attempted suicide. She was addicted to coke and then heroin, probably sex too. And Jeremy was addicted to her, the way the space-time continuum seemed to flex and recoil when she stepped in a room. How else to explain why he benignly accepted her manic behavior, came to see it as perfectly normal. One day he would come home and discover that she'd papered over their entire apartment, including windows, floor, and all major appliances, with smiley face wallpaper that she'd found at a thrift store. The next he would find her naked on the fire escape, sobbing over the death of her parents' geriatric dachshund. The day after that, she would descend on the restaurant where he was waiting tables and talk him into quitting his job on the spot and flying with Berlin to her, flying to Berlin with her, where they slept in a squat with a group of Slovenian anarchists. Aoki's life was a never-ending art project, lived as if an invisible audience were judging her work for originality and intensity of performance. Jeremy dutifully stepped into the role of, si of muse and sidekick, a zen-like counterweight for her underpredictable psychosis, the only person in Aoki's life who took her stunts in stride. She saw him, she said, as her savior, a role that both thrilled and exhausted him. After her second rehab stint, a brief period of freedom and sanity when Jeremy considered but ultimately rejected the thought of sneaking off to a foreign country before she returned, a freshly committed Aoki began a series of oil portraits, all of Jeremy, his hand, his torso, his neck, but never his entire face. Intensely violent, quasi-spiritual, 10-foot-tall paintings that finally launched her into critical art world fame. There were shows in Tel Aviv and Rio. She cut her hair in a spiral around her head and took to wearing only clothes that were silver. Life with her was an amusement park ride Jeremy couldn't seem to get off, even as the loop-de-loops nauseated him and the constant adrenaline threatened to give him a heart attack. Besides, his band, This Invisible Spot, was coming into his own, its own. The band fired their atonal lead singer and promoted Jeremy from backup to lead. They hired an old friend of Aoki's, a manic Belgian named Anton, to write new material for them. They abandoned their melancholic, low-core sound, added a DJ, and began playing their songs at double speed. In 2003, they were signed to a prominent indie record label and released an album, Feeling Fantastic. It sold 80,000 copies in the States, garnered raves from previously dismissive music critics, and briefly launched them to number two on the college charts. In America, they are respected. In Asia, they are huge. During that ill-fated February, the band toured in Singapore and Seoul and Tokyo, where they played to a crowd of 10,000 screaming Harajuku girls, and Aoki signed with a prestigious and Aoki signed with a prestigious gallery. On a train to Kyoto with his bandmates listening to their iPods in complicit silence and Aoki sleep, asleep with her head on his lap, Jeremy decided that he would propose to her at the Temple of the Golden Pavilion just so this hallucination, the frozen rice fields spinning past, the world unfurling before him, would never end. Except that when they got to Kyoto, Aoki disappeared for two days and returned so hungover that she spent the last leg of the trip vomiting blood in the bathroom. On the plane home, Aoki confessed that she'd been sleeping with Anton since Singapore. 
He was seeking artistic inspiration and I knew it could give it to him. It was really for the good of the whole band, including you, she explained to Jeremy, as if he would understand. Considering his history, he might have given in to her twisted logic if it hadn't been for the message on his answering machine when he finally arrived home, bleary and jet-lagged and shell-shocked. The message was from Jillian, his mother, informing him that she'd been diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer and her boyfriend had moved out because he couldn't handle the pressure of watching her die and would he mind coming out to Los Angeles to take care of her? He moved a week later. Quitting the band and breaking up with Aoki in an epic six-hour screaming match that ended with her threatening to jump off the Williamsburg Bridge if he got on the plane. He went anyway. And as he flew over the Great Plains towards the West Coast, looking down at the golden brown fields that covered the country like a warm patchwork quilt, it was as if he had expunged a poison from his bloodstream and was waking up slowly from a long intoxication. Things changed in L.A. so rapidly that it felt like his years with Aoki in New York were a dream sequence from someone else's biopic. Reality was his sick mother wasting away in her stuffy bungalow bedroom as she ejected an astonishing quantity of blood and pus and other vile secretions from her dying body. And there was a whole new social world for him to navigate with long-neglected school friends. And then only a few months after arriving home, there was Claudia. They'd met at the barbecue of a mutual friend, and he'd been struck by her immediately. Not that she was the prettiest girl in the room. Oh, sorry, not that she was the prettiest girl he'd met, though she was sexy in an endearing, guileless sort of way, but that she was so open, so free of artifice, in a way that Aoki had never been. She didn't try to command attention, but gathered it slowly to herself with easy humor and an earnestness that was foreign to him. She was chronically insecure, there was no doubt about that. But underneath that nice Midwestern girl exterior was a stubborn streak and willful ambition. Willful ambition. Being with Claudia was like, felt like being wrapped in a down duvet. It was comforting to be in a relationship of equals, one where he could sometimes even be at its center. During the endless months of Jill's, Jillian's dying, he cried in Claudia's soft arms so many times that he eventually couldn't imagine ever living without them. He'd since lost touch with many of his friends from New York. Sorry. He'd since lost touch with many of his friends from New York, including his bandmates, who had hired a new lead singer, renamed the band, released a second album that flopped, and finally disbanded when Anton died of a heroin overdose. Aoki's star had risen since their breakup. She was genuinely famous now. And he saw her name and face in hip lifestyle magazines every once in a while. He'd look at these photographs intently, trying to connect the woman in the pictures, blazing intention and icy confidence with a screaming hysteric that he'd left on a heap on her paint-splattered concrete floor. He threw these magazines away at work so Claudia wouldn't run across them. Otherwise, the only reminder he kept of their years together, besides the annoying voice in his head, said that, that, that sorry, besides the annoying voice that lingered in his head, judging him, was the painting that hung in the living room, an image of his own twisted torso reaching out for something just off canvas. She'd given him the painting for his thirtieth birthday, right before they broke up. It was so monstrously monumental, so desperately needy, and so intensely personal that getting rid of it would be like throwing away a chunk of his own flesh. Even after everything had changed, he couldn't quite make that final break. 
So the painting hung there above the worn leather couch, a reminder of a Jeremy he no longer really recognized, but sometimes missed, the way you get nostalgic for a long-lost college friend. The last time he'd heard from Aoki was a letter she sent him when she found out about his wedding three years ago. The message was scrawled in crayon on the back of an old pen and ink sketch that she'd made of him sleeping. Jeremy, she will never love you the way you need to be loved. You have bled my heart dry, leaving me as empty as a ghost. I know I'm supposed to wish you all the happiness in the world, but that would be a lie, so I'm just going to say that someday you will remember that the only true love is devastation, and you will realize that I will be with you forever. <laughs> she didn't sign it, an egotist to the end. She had almost, he had almost shared the letter with Claudia as a way of showing her how ridiculous the whole melodramatic episode with Aoki had really been, how over it all he really was. But then he thought better of it. He tucked the note in the back of a drawer and wiped it from his mind. At least, that was the last time he'd heard from Aoki until two days ago, when he'd found an email from her in his inbox. Just two sentences. Coming to Los Angeles for a gallery retrospective this fall and would love to see you if for no other reason than to apologize in person. A lot has changed and I think I'm a much more pleasant person now and at least 43% more sane. He'd immediately closed the email, shut down his computer and walked away. But he hadn't deleted it and he hadn't told Claudia about it either. Even now, as he swung up the hill towards their house, the car's wheels jolting across the potholes in the neglected asphalt, and his wife silently fretting beside him, he could feel Aoki's email tugging at him, demanding a response. Just thinking about it made his cranium throb, as if someone had wedged it in a vise and was slowly, meticulously, tightening the screws around his temples. Wow. Sorry for the gratuitous swearing. There's <laughs> um, I can either read another section that's very short or I can take questions. Read? You sure? Okay. That felt kind of long. This one's much shorter. Um, okay. This is uh, a passage. This is kind of before they find out that uh, their, their house is going into foreclosure. Uh, Claudia's, the book opens when Claudia's. Uh, movie is going to have its premiere. So this is the night that they're going to Claudia's movie premiere, which may be a scene that some of you are familiar with. They followed Klieglikes across the city, their excitement growing as they drove towards the beams, only to discover, once they drew closer, that the lights were actually parked in front of a new sushi restaurant, where a string of LAs attended to a parade of luxury SUVs. Claudia's premiere, located in an aging movie theater a few blocks farther west, merited no light displays. No tabloid television reporters, no screaming fans lined up for autographs, no limousines triple parked in the street. Still, there was a red carpet flung across the sidewalk and a cluster of photographers standing by a logo wall. A table of pretty young pub publicists was hanging out will call tickets to a line of guests. Someone had arranged a brace of groomed shrubs at the foot of the carpet, and metal crowd control barriers had been, kept, had been set up to keep out the desultory, 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 am I pronouncing that right? <laughs> Sometimes I don't know how to pronounce the words that I write, this is silly. Uh, riffraff, desultory riffraff. 
A cluster of anonymous industry insider types, mostly in jeans or suits fresh from work, stood schmoozing outside the theater entrance. The atmosphere outside the theater crackled with anticipation and possibility, and the traffic on Wilshire Boulevard clotted as passing drivers slowed in the hopes of spotting someone significant. Frankly, Claudia was grateful that there was a premiere at all. These days, with Hollywood still ver reverberating from last winter's strike, the lavish parties were li limited strictly to tentpole films with $100 million marketing budgets. Claudia's was a low-budget movie with a small distributor, no Angelina or Jennifer or Will in a lead role, just an ensemble cast of semi-recognizable indie cinema stalwarts and television actresses. But her distributors, buoyed by advanced reviews and a handful of Sundance Awards, and smelling the possibility of a breakout hit, the next Juno, Claudia had heard them say more than once in recent weeks, occasionally swapping in Lost in Translation or Garden State, had ponied up the money for the free cocktails and the Mediterranean buffet and the rented carpet. So here she was at her very own Hollywood premiere. Having attended so many of these events as a guest, where officious publicists typically funneled her straight past the red carpet towards the nobody of importance entrance, she found it hard to accept that this time the press line was waiting for her. They parked a few blocks away and walked back towards the theater. Claudia's phone turned persistently, um, and the evening, soup air, ugh, the evening air was soupy with late July humidity. Sweat dripped down the nape of her neck as they approached the red carpet. She reached out for Jeremy's hand, and Jeremy gripped hers back with a damp palm. By now, she could see her investors waving at her, the publicist smiling toothily in her direction. For a brief moment, as she stepped into the turning crowd, she remembered the sensation of walking down the aisle at her wedding, of a hundred eyes turned in her direction, and the realization that this one day was inviolably hers. Then she and Jeremy were swallowed up by the heat-seeking crowd, which had pinpointed Claudia as tonight's fuel source. There was her producer, grabbing her in a bear hug, and the stars of her film doing interviews with a reporter from a film magazine, and a clutch of her friends smiling from the sidelines as the flashes popped off around her. The rest was a blur, just as her wedding had been three years earlier, a series of high-voltage encounters, each spitting off from the last, each one landing her at the next, as little by little she made her way across the red carpet and into the lobby and down the aisle of the theater, until finally she found herself seated, sitting in a seat in the center of a crowded room as the lights went down and her own name floated up on the screen in four-foot-high letters, written and directed by Claudia Munger. And I'll leave it at that. <clears throat> so, yeah, um, I'll, I'll take questions if anybody has any. Or not. <laughs> well, that was easy. Okay, Cecil. Um, so you said that you're inspired by uh, the neighborhood and uh -huh. stuff like that. Was it difficult because the characters are so familiar feeling to this neighborhood? Was it difficult to like face people in the Trader Joe's? <laughs> well, I didn't base this on anyone in particular. Um, like, there's not, uh, you know, the characters are all very fictional, and the things that happen to them are pretty fictional too. Um, you know, I did, I did pick people's brains, you know, some friends and musicians or friends who are directors and friends who are teachers because there's some, te uh, Claudia eventually becomes a teacher in this book. Um, 
And you know, you know, I think the biggest stress for me is verisimilitude. You know, there, uh, there's a fine line that I try and walk in my writing between like reality and hyperreality, and especially with a book where like you know that this demographic is particularly critical about um, things that don't ring true that are their kind of home turf. I was a little, I definitely was a little worried about people being like. Ugh. She totally got that wrong. Um, so in that sense, yeah, a little, little worried, but not so worried about having someone come and hit me in Trader Joe's because they think that I wrote about them. <laughs> that would be kind of cool, actually. <laughs> uh, any other questions? OK, well, um, I will sign books. There's a lot of cookies left. There's also wine, and then um, I think we're all going to head down to Rockwell afterwards and have some more alcohol and food, and uh, I can sign books there too. <laughs> oh, lessons learned from the first book that applied when writing the second book. Um, yeah, I would say that, well, I mean, how to write generally. Like, I didn't really know how to write when I wrote my first book, and I feel like I learned a lot in the process. Well, it doesn't mean that I knew how to write it when I was writing it. I kind of lucked into something that worked, I think, sometimes. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the second book was actually harder to write than the first in a lot of ways, because when I wrote the first book, I was kind of just doing it for fun. I never really expected that it was going to sell. You know, I mean, I hoped that it would sell, but I didn't expect that it was going to be bought by a publisher and then it was going to be see the light of day. So I was kind of writing in a vacuum, and it was fun. I was just writing for myself. And then suddenly with this book, I had an editor and a publisher and an agent and readers who expected things from me. And uh, that made things a lot harder. Um, so it was, I think the hardest thing was to like tune all those voices out and just to like write for myself again. So that's less a lesson than it was just kind of a challenge. Oh, hi. Okay. So was there a pressure for you? Were you on a timeline? Did you feel like I have to write my second book by a certain day? How did you get inspired well, your idea? There were two things that um, were the pressure. One, um, my editor, when I signed my contract for my two-book deal, said you have to get it to me by October of 2009. And then I got pregnant. <laughs> and I was due at the end of the summer of 2009. And I knew that if I didn't get the book done before the baby came, that I probably wouldn't finish it in time for my deadline. So I was kind of racing the baby and I actually turned the book into my editor of the day before Auden was born <laughs> and thank you Auden for just waiting that extra 24 hours yeah you know I, Greg's got to knock me up or I'm never going to get it done <laughs> deadlines I work well with deadlines <laughs> oh another question yeah um Yes. Yes. And yes and yes. I'm inspired by everything. Um I God. I you know, I hear stories. Like I'm I'm inspired by stories that I hear. Um I, you know, I, I think most most of most of my books, all two of my books, um, have kind of had things in them that were inspired by real world stories that I heard um, that 
kind of jumped out at me and I thought, well, that's an interesting jumping off point for a book or something in the book. Um, and then the rest of it kind of develops organically. Maybe I meet someone who's, who interests me and I think of oh, that person kind of could be turned into a character. Um, a little bit of news stories, but I would say mostly, mostly kind of, I don't know, I don't know if I'd rank them, but yeah, a little bit of everything. You could be in my next book. Watch what you say. Watch what you say, exactly. <laughs> Hi. Do you, um, do you know the overall completion of what's going to happen before you start writing? No. Do you start writing with a sort of... Do I start writing with... Sketch or sort of moment or something? Yeah, the... The question is, do I start? Do I know what's going to happen, or do I start with a sketch? Um, both books that I I started with the whole vision of how it was going to work, and then I got about a third of the way through, and I threw the whole thing away and started again. Um, and I would say most both of my books so far, and so far, you know, the third that I'm working on now, seem to kind of progress in the same way, which is that I have a rough idea and a rough idea where I want it to end, and I start writing it, and then everything changes in the middle. Like the story, the characters start telling me stories that I didn't expect them to tell me, and that sounds really like touchy feely, but but it's true. It's kind of like they speak to you, they speak to me as I'm writing them, and start telling me their stories, and then everything changes. So, yeah. hi. Um. Well, I'd written about 100 pages. I had to turn in three chapters to my agent and my editor. And I sent it to them, and I just wasn't feeling good about it. And um, I initially started this book in 2007, and I had the vision. It was before the, the economy crashed. And I had this vision that I was going to write a book about a couple that was buying a house. And it was going to be about their travails as they were buying a house. And so I wrote 100 chapters. I mean, 100 chapters, that would be amazing, a hundred pages of this book, and I turned it in, and I was kind of just like not feeling happy about it. And, and also the economy was changing, and the real estate market was starting to go in the downslide, and it just started feeling like the story that I actually wanted to tell was happening now that w was different than what I'd started to write. So I basically like, I called up my editor, and I said, I think I'm going to scrap the whole thing. And she was like, Oh, okay. And uh, but then I told her I was going to write about a couple that was losing their house instead of buying a house, and she got very excited about that. And so that's how it went. So. <laughs> um, who are some of your favorite writers? Who are some of my favorite writers? Well, um, I love um, Jonathan Franzen, Jonathan Lethem. Uh, Jennifer Egan is amazing. She's a great book that's out right now. I haven't read it, but everyone says it's great. Um, uh, Tom Parada, Claire Massoud, um, Mine's Going Blank. Probably if I rouse the shelves, I could think of some more. But those are some good ones to start with. Anyone else? Okay. Cookies, wine, signing, more drinks. <laughs> thank you so much, and thank you, Skylight. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashley and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, or at the iTunes Music Store.
Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.